Good afternoon, Spark. Thank you, team, for such an amazing worship service thus far, and we are excited to start to worship God now through the study of the Word. Join with me as we pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this time together, and thank you for this opportunity to worship you, to connect with you and with one another, and to um, continue to be reminded of this beautiful story that we're part of. We ask right now that you would open up our hearts and our minds, our, our eyes, our ears, the space amongst us that we might be able to hear what it is that you are speaking to us this afternoon and that um, we might be able to ponder again and anew um, this story that you've brought into the world. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. All right, our continuation of our Luke story uh, starts now tonight. We're going to be reading in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in the manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child. He was given the name Yeshua. We say Jesus. His parents would have said Yeshua. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. That's the end of our reading today. And our message this afternoon is entitled Caesar and Christ. So the Gospel of Luke right now, as we continue to push through this beautiful story, and I know we're all quite familiar with the Christmas story, but there's something more going on here that I think we want to pay attention to other than just this lovely sort of pastoral story of how Jesus came into the world. The Gospel of Luke is inviting us to examine the distinctions between the rule of Caesar and the rule and realm of God. And as we start to push through the beginning of the story in Luke chapter 2 and the arrival of Christ, we're going to continue to see Luke push on these distinctions. 
This is what Caesar's kingdom looks like. This is what Christ's kingdom look like. So right away at the very beginning, he's going to talk about Caesar Augustus. Now, Augustus just is a fancy word, sort of like the august one, the venerable or honorable one. And Caesar is a name now that had become, was a family name with Julius Caesar, but has now become the understanding the terminology for the person who's in charge, like emperor, the Caesar, sort of like the king. Caesar Augustus is here right at the very beginning, and the people who are hearing Luke tell the story are immediately going to know, all right, this guy's in charge, this is how this person led, and they're going to start to sense the power of the Roman Empire, and they're going to have all of those things in mind. So the very first thing that happens is that Luke is beginning with Caesar acting as the dominant cause of movement in the story, right? They're not moving, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph aren't moving through the story because of their own volition. They are moving because of Caesar's commands. Caesar has demanded a census. Caesar wants to keep count. So everyone now needs to obey, pay, and even relocate if needed, right? So none of this has to do with the idea of what would be good for Mary, who's nearly nine months pregnant, who's nine months pregnant clearly, or what's best for the families, or couldn't you just go and count in Nazareth? Everyone needs to go to their own town to register. Maybe Joseph had additional family property in Bethlehem, it's likely. Maybe there's a reason why the taxation needs to be done there. But Jesus was born into a family that now has to submit to Rome's dictates, right? They can't say, this is what's working for us, we are in the Galilee, we're expecting a child, they have to obey Caesar's commands. So their very situation is going to start to demonstrate the empire's abuses right here at the very beginning, and Luke wants us to note that. We're reminded then of Mary's song, a song crying out for justice, which as we've talked about with Omer's message and even with Kevin's message of Zechariah, this theme of biblical justice of God's rule and reign is going to be set up now with these crying out of these people in our text to now seeing the abuses of Caesar and Caesar's empire right here at the very beginning of our Christmas story. Caesar's going to be asking the question, what counts, right? Caesar's going to be counting people for his own purpose of what he can get from them of his own taxation. But God counts people for different reasons, doesn't he? This is what Mary and Zechariah and, of course, moving forward is going to be the continued pursuit of Jesus's ministry, that Jesus is going to count people for the purpose of love, for the purpose that they are of value simply because they're made in the image of God, because Jesus has compassion, because Jesus will want to serve these people. Caesar and the Roman Empire are going to count people for their own benefit, for their own abused, abused benefit. Now, as we continue to push through our story, then we're going to note that while they're there um, in Bethlehem, in this sort of crazy little sort of more backwater village, just a few south, few miles south of Jerusalem, compare that to where Caesar is issuing these decrees out of Rome. We have this town of David, this beautiful lineage, and they're there in this space in the shadow of Caesar's opulence with a Herodian not too far of Herod's palace that he is the king of Judea but he is a, a tool of the Roman Empire and continued to be in power as a result of them and we have Jesus being born in a manger in a place where animals are kept right placed in a watering trough placed in this humble small village of Bethlehem 
this is immediately something Luke's pushing on. Like, where do kings come from? Where does the rule and the reign come from? Is it coming from Rome or is it coming from Bethlehem? Is it coming from palaces or is it coming from humble beginnings? And we see here that while it's most likely that the room, their house was crowded, there was no room for them in the guest room. Notice the difference there. Maybe some of you are thinking, but I thought it was called an inn. Luke is specifically using the room, the word spare room in Greek and not the word that he uses for inn, which he does later on in the parable of Good Samaritan. Luke is providing maybe an understanding of the very humble beginnings being born around animals, but also Mary having some privacy, not having to share a guest room with a whole bunch of people and being in the place where, where the animals are. It might've even been a bit warmer, although I'm sure none of us would have picked that um, as, as the place where we would have anticipated the king of the entire universe being born, right? So as Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the how the word Bethlehem, house of bread, and he's born in that bakery town, the bread of the world. And as Jesus, who will come to symbolize living water, is placed in that watering trough, that feeding trough, that manger, there are shepherds now living out in the fields nearby, and they're keeping watch over their flocks. An angel of the Lord appears to them, glory shones all around them, they're freaking out and terrified, and the angel's good first words, as we've always learned, is do not be afraid. I bring you good news for all people. Like these, this good news is going to cause great joy for all people. And this is another distinction immediately of the difference between Rome, which stratifies citizens, which has a class that says these people are Roman citizens, these people are not, these people are worthy of these things, these people are not. God here is heralding through the voice of the angels, Jesus's birth, that will bring good news, great joy for all people. And he's bringing that news to everyone, all included. And they, the whole, all these shepherds are having this great news that's being brought to them. And the sign is that they will find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. Suddenly, this great company of heavenly hosts appears with the angel, and we have a distinction again. You see, Caesar required people to sort of walk around as an earthly choir, heralding him when he would arrive at different events and singing his praises. But here we have at the announcement of the birth of Jesus to these shepherds, we have a heavenly choir being brought forth, not one that Jesus is demanding himself out of ego but one where heaven cannot help but cry out with great joy for the arrival of Jesus. And angels in the book of Luke will always sort of serve in this role as proclamations and announcements, as we've seen so far with Mary, with Zechariah, with Elizabeth feeling that sense with Mary there. All of that in the book of Luke, angels are announcing divine activity. But at this point, then, we should just note that this is the last time angels will show up in the book of Luke until the very end when they show up at the tomb. So pushing again with this divine proclamation, angels show up when at this book ending of the book of Luke to show the divine proclamations and again sort of pushing on the distinction between Caesar and Caesar's realm and rule and Christ right? Even at the very end of our story with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it'll be another empire kind of conversation as the angels show up and proclaim the good news that the empire 
the wave Caesar has not won. We'll talk about that in a few more chapters, of course. As the angels show up with this beautiful choir, they shout, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace on whom his favor rests. And another distinction. You see, Rome claimed Pax Romana, this peace order of the world. And this is distinct between God's rule and realm of shalom. In Hebrew, the term shalom, peace, indicates not only a cessation of violence, but it indicates a sense of wholeness, a completion, that all is being set right in the world as God intended. It has echoes of Eden in there from that garden. Wars stop. People are reconciled to one another. And justice is brought about. Things are made right. In Pax Romana, this is really more of a... Um, to use a modern phrase, law and order. Um, this is about seeing governments and powers put things the way that they want them and then force that peace on everyone, which is not truly a peace. It is a forced will and way of the empire. The shalom that is now being announced by these angels is quite distinct and different. What is being brought about is not the way of Caesar. It is not the way of Rome. It's not this fake peace, this law and order command that everyone just do exactly as the emperor says and as the emperor wants at his whim or will. But instead, this shalom is something that brings about a sense of wholeness and peace for all people, not just for the ones that are favored by the Roman Empire. When the angels leave them, when the angels leave the shepherds, the shepherds can't wait to rush off to Bethlehem and go and see what's happened. They hurry off. They see everything. They see Jesus now as part of this beautiful family with Mary and Joseph lying in the manger, just as it had been told them. And they go then, and the shepherds are the first ones to start spreading the word, the first evangelists, if you'll have sort of that idea, the first ones to go and spread this good news about Jesus. And Mary takes all of this in and ponders it in her heart. Now, this is pretty amazing, isn't it? Because Caesar demands on the praise of the powerful, the rich, the connected. But here, our Jesus story enters in with the praise of the humble, of the shepherds, of the ones who are in leadership throughout our Bible, the ones who know how to care for the sheep. You see, throughout our biblical text, shepherds are ordinary. They're unremarkable. It's part of our biblical story, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and others, these are, these are the shepherds of our story. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. All of that imagery of caretaking and humility and understanding and service, that is quite different from the power, powerful praise that Rome and Caesar will be demanding constantly. Here we are seeing shepherds, the ordinary, invited to come and herald the newborn king. So what is the content of this good news? What causes them to be so excited? Is it just that a baby has been born and how interesting and wonderful that is? Of course, he's born of the line of David, so maybe we have hope for messianic praise in that. What is it that causes them to have this good news? It's that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Savior, the Soter of the world. This claim that Caesar had taken upon himself, that Caesar, Augustus, was the soter, the savior of all, not, not Jesus, that Hercules or Asclepius or Emperor Augustus, who claimed to be the son of God, the soter, 
Was there? No. Instead, it's this baby who's given the name salvation, God's salvation, Yahshua, Yeshua. He will be the savior of the world. And Luke is challenging now in this very moment, the claims of the entire empire, the claims of Caesar. And he is now saying, the emperor is not the soter. The emperor and the empire are not in charge. It is this baby who's been born, who's lying in a manger. That is the good news the shepherds are so excited about and can't wait to share with everyone. So throughout this entire first narrative, this distinction between Caesar and Christ is already being laid out as a foundation for the rest of the book and for all of humanity as we listen in. Luke is presenting us a choice. He's presenting his readers a choice. Which savior do you want to follow? Whose salvation do you want? Do you want the salvation and the savior that is found in Caesar? Or do you want the one that is found in Jesus? You see, Jesus's kingdom is coming very differently than Caesar's, and it differs starkly from that of Caesar's. It actually has no resemblance to the empire powers at all. We have a problem, don't we? Even in modern Christianity, we have a tendency to try to grab the symbols of power and our empire and to try to grab those in and start to mix them in to the way of Jesus. But those symbols have nothing to do with this Jesus story. This Jesus story does not start out with powerful people being in charge and trying to force that Jesus story on everybody else. This Jesus story starts out in stark distinction to the powers of the empire. Uh, there's some fantastic books on this, like Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not, uh, Caesar ate my Jesus. How do we try to separate the images that we have today of Christianity as it has become a more powerful and more shared religion in the world? How do we start to separate that from the powers of empire that have started to creep in, the symbols of empire that have started to creep in? You see, what's so amazing is for the shepherds, the proof that Jesus is the Soter, the savior of the world, the one that they've been waiting for, and the good news that they can't wait to go out and tell everybody is not the crazy angelic display. They don't go start going, oh, wow, it was crazy. There were angels, and then there's going to be these powers and all these other things. They don't talk about the powers of the empire. They start to sh show them that the proof is the swaddled newborn in the feeding trough. That's what they go and tell everybody. Look, it's happened just as we were told. There's a baby lying in a feeding trough, swaddled in newborn clothes. That is the proof. This humble beginning, isn't that crazy? That that's what they see. It's the distinct proof and the good news that they can't wait to go and share. You see the symbols of the empire, the symbols of Caesar, whether it's the eagle and the insignia of Caesar, the Pax Romana, that law and order sort of forced onto everybody, the powers that come on in through armies and choirs and um, powerful praise and all and, pow and palaces and all of that. That is not the way of Jesus. That's not the way of God. In fact, the way of Jesus is going to stand in complete distinction to that. The way of Jesus the signs that show us that Jesus is the Soter are shepherds and angels and 
a small village south of Jerusalem, the town of David, who himself was a humble shepherd, that shalom is coming to all, that Jesus was placed in these humble beginnings. This is what we hope for. So ultimately, what we want to invite all of Sparkers to do is to start to ponder and praise, to follow the way of Mary in this moment. She treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds went away praising God for this good news. How might we ponder and praise the amazing reality that this message of Jesus is not one that comes with the powers of this world, but it's one that's going to completely subvert the powers of this world. What does all this good news mean? Will the hungry be fed? Will the poor be lifted up and the rich be brought down? Will the blind see and the deaf hear? Will the kingdom of God now come here on earth as it is in heaven? I think these are the things that Jesus, that Mary is pondering as she holds Jesus in her arms. These are the things that shepherds ponder now. Is this the beginning where we'll start to see shalom being brought into this world? The angels and the shepherds both praise God. The heavens and the most earthly. All of these things, from the least to the most glorious, are united in their praise because of what is happening in the person of Jesus and the birth here in this story. So Sparkers, let's ponder and praise. And let's also consider which way do we want to follow? The way of Caesar or the way of Christ? And we're going to beg you as you consider which savior, which soter you want to follow, which power, which empire, which, which rule and reign would you want to be part of? We're going to beg you to really consider the way of Jesus. And it's our prayer that that is the way that we choose, that we choose Jesus as we see that being brought forth, this way of Jesus brought forth in the world, a way of humility, a way of love and a way that is complete, distinct contrast to the empires and the powers of this world. Amen. Now, as we turn our hearts towards communion, as we embrace the symbols of bread and wine and continue to grab hold of these symbols, these humble symbols of community and of hope and of a new way, even in the midst of an empire that looks like it's thriving, even in the midst of those powers and principalities that we contend with. Let's turn our hearts towards these beautiful elements that Jesus has given us that remind us of a banqueting table long ago, of the one we all come to right now together, and of the one that will be in the world to come. For the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table. Join us in communion as we worship. <laughs>